Hello, everyone, and thank you once again for listening to the saga of World War II, a Cassus Belly project. As always, I appreciate everyone who is listening and encourage you to reach out to me at CassusBellyGuy at gmail.com with any corrections or comments you might have. In addition, positive reviews on iTunes or wherever you get the show help out as well. And to show you that I actually do read your emails and reviews, I'll address a point that was made about my pronunciation. As it is pretty obvious to everyone listening, I'm American, so I pronounce things the American way. When using French or Russian or Chinese or something, I try to be as faithful as I can to the actual pronunciation, but when it comes to differences between American English and British English, I typically just say it the way the Amer- an American would. For instance, Lieutenant versus Lieutenant, or Cunningham versus Cunningham. However, I will admit that Gloucester should be pronounced Gloucester, not Gloucester, just like Worcester Mass, not Worcester. So I do apologize for that one. I also need to address American naming conventions for Japanese aircraft during the war. You've probably heard of Japanese aircraft being referred to by American first names, specifically Vals and Cates in this show, and wondered what exactly I'm talking about or where these names came from. Well, I'm about to tell you. It all goes back to one Captain Frank T. McCoy of the U.S. Army Air Corps Intelligence in mid-1942. He was trying to find a way to quickly and easily refer to different Japanese aircraft because the Japanese system was simply too awkward and confusing. Every Japanese aircraft had two names, the manufacturer's name and the military name. The manufacturer name was just the name of the project given to them by the military, which was an arbitrary alphanumeric sequence. The military name was based on the year the aircraft entered service and its role. So a Nakajima B-5N, or Navy Type 97-1 carrier attack bomber, would simply be known as a Kate. To help make the naming convention more practical, Captain McCoy designated that male names would be used for fighters and female names for all other type of aircraft. To help you follow along, in addition to the Kate naval attack bombers, I will also mention VALs frequently in this episode. The VAL was the Aichi D-3A Navy Type 99 dive bomber. You may also be wondering, if all those names are based on people's names, where did the Zero name come from? Well, the name Zero came from Japanese military designation Navy Type Zero Carrier Fighter. Captain McCoy gave the name Zeke, which you'll hear once in a while, but it didn't quite catch on. So there you have it, the Allied Naming Convention for Japanese Planes. It is a little anachronistic to use it in reference to events which occurred before the naming convention was actually developed, but I think it's easier to be consistent and just use it all the way through. Most modern sources use these names anyway. Okay, I hope that clears things up a little for everyone. Let's get started with the show. Episode 20, The Sledgehammer and the Egg. Ah, have been astonished. That Japan should in a single day have plunged into war against the United States and the British Empire. What kind of a people do they think we are? Is it possible they do not realize that we shall never cease to persevere against them until they have been taught a lesson which they and the world will never forget?
As we already discussed, the Japanese invasion of the Dutch East Indies in modern-day Indonesia was crucial to their Pacific strategy. This would allow them to consolidate their southern front, provide them a massive wealth of natural resources, and create a jumping-off point to a potential invasion of Australia. Even before the fall of Singapore, the Japanese had begun their efforts to begin securing the Indonesian archipelago. Landings had already taken place in both Borneo and Sumatra, but the real crux of the island chain was Java. Java lies at the center of the archipelago. It was, and remains, the most populous island and is home to two of the largest cities in the country, Jakarta and Surabaya. Surabaya home of the Allied Logistics Hub. Taking the island would not be easy, however. The southern coast is strewn with cliffs and the interior is rugged and heavily forested. True, the Japanese would not have to fight for every inch of the island, but the terrain was nonetheless formidable. To help even the odds, Japanese chose to degrade the island's defenses prior to the actual invasion. In order to set the conditions for the invasion, the Japanese needed to accomplish two things. Gain air superiority and isolate the island from support. To achieve these aims, the Japanese utilized a textbook three-pronged approach. It's remarkable how closely the invasion of Java resembles a raid by an infantry rifle company. When conducting a raid, a rifle company commander must isolate his objective. To do this, he first sets an inner and outer cordon, and oftentimes an ambush on the enemy's main resupply route. Once the objective is isolated, he conducts the raid. This is exactly what the Japanese did to take Java. The first prong of the Japanese operation was to create an outer cordon by seizing the island of Timor, the main fighter link between Australia and the rest of the southwest Pacific. Without a transit stop there, the Allies would have far less ability to transfer aircraft out or into Australia. The second prong constituted securing the inner cordon by taking the island of Bali and capturing the massive, brand new airfield located there. Whoever controlled that airfield controlled the skies above Java, and the Japanese absolutely needed to take it to guarantee the success of their mission. The third and final prong was to disrupt Allied resupply efforts. This is where the raid on Darwin came in. Darwin sits at the very northern tip of Australia, colloquially known as the Top End. Darwin acted as the nearest Allied logistics hub outside of the Dutch East Indies, and would be the first place Allied leadership would dispatch support from. If the port facilities there were sufficiently degraded, then support from Australia would be significantly reduced until those facilities were repaired, which would hopefully buy the Japanese enough time to take the archipelago. Not that the Japanese necessarily needed to prepare the invasion so meticulously. The Allies were in complete shambles. As elsewhere in the Far East, the defenders were ill-experienced and ill-equipped, and leadership was unprepared to execute an effective defense. The Dutch East Indies were particularly difficult to defend. Population centers were spread out, as were garrisons and air assets. Consolidating the defense of the islands under any circumstance would have been difficult, but with completely disorganized leadership, the task was almost impossible. For starters, Abdicom was a completely ad hoc command structure. Joint ventures are always a headache, but trying to conduct them on the far side of the world with limited resources and little clear chain of command compounded the problems inherent in joint command. The Japanese would spend roughly a month degrading the defenses of the island. On February 3, 1942, the Imperial Japanese Navy launched a 60-plane raid on Surabaya. The raid was a huge success, and managed to destroy 34 Allied aircraft. From then until the invasion began in early March, the Allies were under nearly constant aerial attack and were powerless to stop it. The defending aircraft had almost all been destroyed, and American P-40 Tomahawk fighters flying up from Darwin weren't able to penetrate Japanese fighter screens to alleviate the bombardment. With Surabaya seized, and the fall of Timor approaching, 
The time for the raid on Darwin arrived, and the Japanese came well prepared. Against the lightly defended harbor, they brought four aircraft carriers, the Akagi, Horyu, Suryu, and Kaga, as well as their accompanying complement of over 200 aircraft. The strike force would be led by none other than Commander Fuchida, who had scored so much success against Pearl Harbor barely two months prior. Again, the attack would be split into two waves, aiming to destroy Australian port facilities and ships in the harbor. Darwin was the main Allied logistics hub feeding into Southeast Asia and Indonesia, especially after the fall of Singapore. It was the point of departure for any supplies coming into theater, whether they flowed from the east or west. This made the small harbor town the biggest piece of key terrain remaining in theater. Darwin was also one of only two remaining theater-level air bases available to the Allies, the other being 3,700 miles away in Ceylon, leaving the Japanese with the choice of which asset to destroy first. For a moment, the Japanese planners, particularly Isoroku Yamamoto, were indecisive, but Commander Genda, of Pearl Harbor Infamy, broke the impasse. He reasoned that Darwin was closer to their current and planned operations, and that there had been significant Allied buildup in the city recently. Yamamoto agreed, and Darwin was placed firmly in the sights of the Imperial Japanese Navy. So late in the evening of February 15th, the Japanese fleet sailed south from Palau toward Australia. Two and a half days later, in the wee hours of February 19th, the Japanese began preparing for the raid. Aircraft staged on deck, fuelers ran lines, and bomb loaders scuttled about the decks of the four carriers. As can happen at sea, the wind shifted suddenly to the northwest, forcing the fleet to turn into it. Steaming away from their target at full speed, the wind streaming over the decks reached 25 miles per hour. The planes had to launch now, with strong headwinds, before the whole fleet had to turn again, or the distance to the target increased much more. At 7.30 a.m., the air fleet began launching from the carrier decks 220 miles northwest of Darwin. By 8.45, 188 aircraft roared aloft. The main strike force consisted of 71 Val dive bombers and 81 Kate high-altitude bombers, screened by 36 Zeros. In a little over an hour, the ill-prepared port of Darwin would be reduced to mangled steel and burning hulks. Meanwhile, U.S. Navy Lieutenant Thomas Moore was flying a routine patrol through the Timor Sea when he and the Zeros spotted each other. The Zeros being far faster and more nimble than his Catalina flying boat easily overtook him with their advantage in altitude and forced him to ditch in the sea. He and his crew survived and were later recovered by a merchant ship, but they never had time to alert Allied forces in Darwin. The air fleet was again spotted as it flew over Bathurst Island by a Navy lieutenant and a civilian coast watcher. In an episode surprisingly similar to that which occurred at Pearl, the messages were shrugged off as an Allied flight was expected to return that morning. Whereas in Pearl, it was a flight of B-17s, at Darwin, a squadron of Royal Australian Air Force P-40 Tomahawks was forced to turn around due to bad weather, and the men in Darwin assumed that these were the aircraft spotted. This flight of P-40s would end up being Darwin's only real defense. At about 9.55 a.m., the incoming squadron of P-40s broke in two. A flight landed to rest and refuel, while B-Flight stayed aloft to fly Combat Air Patrol, or CAP. Only a few minutes later, they were ambushed by the Japanese Zeros. Almost immediately, Lieutenant Jack Perez and Elton Perry's aircraft was hurtling toward the sea in flames. Lieutenant Ostriker, the flight leader, pulled his nose upward to gain altitude and see what they were up against. What he saw was 18 Zeros circling like hawks overhead, waiting for their turn to catch their prey. 
All Striker's five tomahawks were no match against the superior Japanese force, but he had to do something. He raced for the billowing white cloud south of the harbor to hide from the fighters until he could think of, think of something better to do. The other two remaining pilots of B-Flight fared worse. Lieutenant William Walker, who had been struck in the shoulder by a Japanese 20mm round, landed his plane at the RAF airfield and managed to escape his aircraft before it was strafed and destroyed on the ground. Lieutenant Max Weeks found himself surrounded by zeros in a cacophony of bullets and aircraft. Within moments, his tomahawk might as well have been made of Swiss cheese, so he ditched his plane 10 miles out at sea. After losing the enemy fighters in the clouds, Lieutenant Ostreicher knew he had to make it back to the airfield and land. He turned his aircraft north and exploded out of the clouds to fight his way back. He managed to down two valve dive bombers on the way. At 11.45, he landed, but the second Japanese wave destroyed his plane on the ground. Alpha Flight attempted to get aloft, but was mostly destroyed before they could get any altitude. Only one aircraft, that of Lieutenant John Glover, was able to put any resistance at all. He made it in the air long enough to shoot down two zeros before he himself was shot down and put his plane in the drink. One pilot, Lieutenant Bert Rice, was shot down only feet off the ground, but had the misfortune of landing in the swamp that makes up most of the top end of Australia. It being the height of summer in the southern hemisphere and the middle of the wet, the crocs must have been an absolute menace at the time. I don't know what's worse, honestly, flying against dozens of zeros or having to float with crocs. Regardless, he managed to survive both, which is a feat few can boast of. After the zeros cleared the way, destroying the 9 P-40s and another 11 RAAF aircraft on the ground, the Cates and Vals followed to inflict the real damage. The harbor was absolutely jam-packed with vessels. First, the port facilities had to be shut down a few weeks earlier due to a cyclone. Then, a dock worker strike exacerbated the backlog. Darwin, a relatively small port with little traffic before the war, only had two docks to load and unload ships, so the backlog would only be alleviated slowly. This meant the harbor was a ripe target for the Japanese. They didn't just strike at the vessels in the harbor, though, like at Pearl. They struck at port facilities, too, and even destroyed municipal buildings in the town. At 10 a.m., the Cates and Vals showed up and began wreaking havoc. The Australian anti-air gunners tried desperately to shoot them down with everything from Lewis machine guns to heavy 3.7-inch high-altitude anti-air rounds. Despite pumping enormous amounts of lead into the air, they only managed to destroy one enemy aircraft. While the Cates struck mostly at port facilities on the land, the Vals struck at vessels in the harbor. It was like shooting fish in a barrel. After an hour of having their way with Darwin, nine vessels were sunk, including the USS Peary, and another 11 seriously damaged. The Japanese were not yet done with the port, though. As the Navy bombers flew away, land-based aircraft were flying in. 27 Betty bombers and 27 Nell bombers showed up in the skies above the Northern Territory at right about noon. They attacked the airfield and finished the work started earlier and essentially rendered it completely useless. The raid on Darwin was such an utterly complete success for the Japanese that the Allies never again used it as a naval base. Yes, it was rebuilt, but naval operations there never resumed. All told, 191 people were killed, 68 of whom were civilians. The damage to Darwin's infrastructure was devastating. Not only were port facilities like fuel tanks and loading equipment hit, but also buildings in town that had nothing to do with military operations. The attack was so overwhelming that Fuchida remarked that a sledgehammer was used to crack an egg. The Japanese would continue to strike at Darwin, though. 62 more times, in fact. As the defenses improved, Japanese attacks would become less and less successful, though. 
Eventually, when early warning detection in the form of radar was installed, the attacks were able to be halted. With Darwin down for the count, and Bali taken, the final piece was ready to be put in place, Timor. The initial battle for Timor would be a fairly quick affair. On the night of the 19th to 20th of February, 1942, a brief but heavy aerial attack was followed by 5,500 Japanese troops landing on the island split between Dutch and Portuguese sides. The Japanese had mixed results on the first day of battle. Though they made significant gains, Australian commandos also inflicted heavy casualties. To further exploit their gains, the Japanese dropped 300 naval paratroopers near the village of Usua, blocking the retreat of the 2nd Battalion, 40th Infantry. With no other choice, the battalion launched a devastating attack on the Japanese paratroopers, culminating in a bayonet charge and many dead on both sides. The situation was becoming grim for the Allies. Most of Abdicom's contingent, codenamed Sparrow Force, soon surrendered after losing much ground, and by the end of the month, most of the island was in Japanese hands. A small group of Allied troops would continue to hold out for another year, though, forcing the Japanese to leave an entire division on the island. For now, though, the island was effectively under Japanese control, and the conditions had been set for an invasion of Java. Single-engine planes could no longer reach the island after the fall of Timor, and Allied shipping was forced to sail far east of it to avoid Japanese land-based aircraft now stationed there. Seeing the writing on the wall, Wavell advised evacuating the remaining garrisons and abandoning the Dutch East Indies. The Joint Chiefs of Staff in Washington and Churchill refused, however. Churchill was particularly adamant that Wavell not surrender the islands. He believed it better to hold out to the last than just allow the Japanese an easy victory, so Abdicom retained its force on Java. With the situation in the Dutch East Indies rapidly deteriorating, Abdicom was dissolved on February 25th. Wavell returned to India to serve as commander-in-chief of the Indian Army, and all Allied forces remaining in the Indonesian archipelago were turned over to the Dutch command. The roughly 8,000 Anglo-Australian-American troops were now joined under the command of Lieutenant General Hein Terporten, with his roughly 25,000 Dutch regulars. Supporting them was a mishmash of local irregular troops, including militias, police, and effectively forest rangers. Even the regulars were hardly fighting troops, though. Before the start of the war, they were mostly a colonial garrison, farmed out across the entire archipelago in company-sized elements. The four infantry regiments were merely administrative, and they had never assembled into groups larger than battalions, much less conducted combined arms maneuvers at the regimental level. Supporting them were a few small pieces of artillery and a perilously small armored force, consisting of light tanks and some armored cars. Their communications equipment was aging and limited as well, precluding any kind of defense in depth or maneuver defense. A series of static lines would be the best the defenders could muster. Though the non-Dutch troops on the island were better prepared for battle, they were hardly impressive. Most of the 5,500 British troops were not infantrymen, but would be pressed into service as such, yielding expectedly poor results in combat. The only real crack troops on the island were the 3,000 men of Black Force, commanded by Lieutenant Colonel Arthur Blackburn. His men had fought North Africa and Syria and knew what they were doing. Black Force was also short of communications equipment, though, significantly degrading their ability to fight. Lastly, there were 558 men of the 2nd Battalion, 131st Field Artillery of the Texas Army National Guard, who more or less found themselves on the island by accident. They had been on their way to the Philippines when war broke out, so they were diverted to Australia. Upon arriving in Australia, they were redirected to Java to bolster the defense there. 
Despite the large munitions cache on the island, the forward batteries of American 75mm guns only had 100 rounds available because none of the Allied nations fired that caliber. What was left of the defending air forces was a ragtag group of fighters that had escaped Singapore, the Philippines, and other Indonesian islands, consisting of only 40 fighters. These were supported by the remaining American B-17s and A-24 dive bombers, which had not yet been evacuated to Australia, six British and six Australian bombers, along with aging and decrepit Dutch Wildebeest bombers. Facing them would be the veteran Japanese 16th Army under Lieutenant General Hitoshi Imamura. The 16th Army totaled approximately 40,000 troops between its two full divisions and various attachments, many of whom had seen action in previous campaigns. To support the ground troops, the 11th Naval Air Fleet's 400 aircraft were assembled, as well as 97 landing craft, 7 cruisers, 24 destroyers, and a light carrier to get the men ashore. The Allies were in dire straits, and the Japanese knew it. They assumed the Allies would attempt to get as many men off the island as they could, so they dispatched a task force to the Indian Ocean to cut off their retreat. They intended to wreak havoc on British facilities in eastern India anyway, so this essentially killed two birds with one stone. This task force consisted of two strike groups, containing eight carriers and four battleships, as well as an assortment of smaller vessels between them. On the island itself, General Ilgen divided the defense into eastern, western, and central sectors, the central sector acting as a reserve. The eastern sector was anchored at Surabaya, and was manned by a regiment-plus-sized element. The center consisted of little more than a brigade, and the west was most heavily fortified with two infantry regiments and an artillery regiment. The Allies were spread thin over hundreds of miles of the island, so they had to defend in and around the populated areas. The long distances and poor infrastructure worsened their situation by making coordination difficult. Each sector had to fight its own battle, essentially, independent of the other two. For the most part, the Allies would dig in like ticks and force the Japanese to pry them out. In the West, something of a maneuver defense was attempted, but the Allies lacked the necessary ability to coordinate their efforts. When the Japanese came ashore near Kurgan in the east and Morak and Arawetan in the west on February 28th, they met little resistance. The Allied forces did not have the manpower to defend at the beaches everywhere. So the Japanese were able to secure beachheads fairly easily and begin movement inland. Allied fighters did interdict some Japanese units during the landing, but did not do sufficient damage to delay the invasion. Within a week, the Japanese were closing in on the primary defensive positions at Surabaya and Batavia. Though the Dutch defenders and the Allies put up brave resistance in many places, the ill-prepared and ill-armed soldiers had little hope of defeating the Japanese veterans. There were many small engagements in which the Allied troops performed admirably, but they were uncoordinated and overwhelmed. On March 9th, only a little over a week after the initial landing, the Dutch surrendered. The Dutch East Indies were now a Japanese colony. The Dutch East Indies campaign and the invasion of Java specifically were a massive success. In three months, the Japanese had conquered an archipelago the size of Europe and gained access to much-needed oil supplies with internal supply lines. To cripple the Japanese Navy, the Allied forces would now have to find a way to interdict Japanese sea traffic thousands of miles from their nearest friendly port. On the other hand, the Japanese were now severely overextended. They controlled territory from northern Manchuria all the way down to the equator and had to garrison not only their island empire in the Pacific, but their holdings in mainland China. They were very much nearing the limits of what their home islands could control. They had hoped that after such a massive success, they could intimidate the United States into peace. They were, of course, wrong. 
Their empire would expand slightly more, but they were essentially at the high tide mark. It was certainly the end of the beginning in the Western Pacific.